So this is the 26th and final sermon in our series on the book of Job. If you can believe it, we've been at this for nearly four years. This was, in fact, I, was, uh, this, I started Leviticus first when I became pastor here, and we finished that two years ago. Uh, and we started in our winter, summer, or winter, springtime. Let's see if I can get this to shut off so I don't blind myself. There we go. Uh, we chose to go to the book of Job. And so here we are four years later. Now, we started four years ago at the beginning of the book. And one of the things that we said was foundational to understanding Job is understanding that all that happens to Job is, is not because he has done something wrong. That Job is innocent. That he has not, he's not getting some sort of retribution from God for something he has done. He's truly an innocent man. And then over the last two years, we started looking at really the the major part of the book, and that is the conversation between Job and his friends, as they discuss all sorts of philosophical and theological ideas. Now, they're certain, Job's three friends are certain, that all that has happened to Job, the loss of his family, the loss of his business, the loss of his health, they're certain all of it has happened because Job has done something wrong. Now, they start by saying to Job, maybe you don't know what you did wrong. Maybe you just need to repent of something. But as Job continues to proclaim his innocence, they get angrier and angrier with him. And they make the case, no, Job, you certainly must be a sinner. And they argue based upon the fact that they're older. They say, look, we know what we're talking about. We've been around. They try to use supernatural experiences. Well, Job, you know, uh, I had this one situation happen to me, and certainly this must be the case. And most importantly, they do appeal to tradition. Job, this is what we've always thought. When bad things happen, we have always come to the conclusion that the person it happens to must have done something wrong. Job spends all of his time defending his innocence and questioning what in the world is happening. And he even gets to a place where he directly questions what God is doing. Now, the last part of the book that we have studied this year, we have seen through Elihu and certainly the speeches of God, we have seen Job corrected. We have seen him uh, ever uh, ever so uh, carefully uh, by God corrected to understand That where Job went wrong, he does not suffer because he's done something wrong, but in his suffering, he's gone off track. He's come to the place where he has thought perhaps he doesn't need God's wisdom, or perhaps he had the power to deal with this situation. And he is rebuked for that. Job has wondered whether God was good. He has wondered if there was ever any point in ever being a good person. But in the end, as we saw last week, Job is, rejoices because who God is is affirmed to him and repents forever thinking himself more than who he really is. Our text this morning really is just a postscript. It's kind of the end of the story. It kind of ends suddenly. We just get this brief uh, 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 understanding or explanation as to what has happened. And what I think we find here is the reminder that what Job is, is an extreme example of the normal Christian life. The extreme example of the normal Christian life. And I think I'll give you three points this morning about what I mean by the normal Christian life. Number one. Number one, Christians will experience many times of active waiting. 
Christians will experience many times of active waiting. The first thing I want you to note in the text here is that God calls Job my servant. And he says this several times. Now, this is a title that God doesn't give to everybody. Moses is called his servant. A couple of the prophets are called his servant. Jesus is given that title as the servant of God. And, of course, the New Testament tells us it is a title for which we should strive. But he calls Job my servant. At the end of verse 8, he says to Job's friends, You have not spoken right like my servant Job. So here's God's testimony. That through all of this, Job has been faithful. And we should find comfort in that. Because God says this about Job. Even though in chapter 3, he finds himself in the deepest types of despair. Job wishes he had never been born. Job wishes God would just kill him. But God doesn't look at him and say, I'm so disappointed, Job, that you weren't always happy in the midst of losing your children and your health and your wealth. We should find comfort in the fact that God says this about Job, even though Job went through fits of questioning what God was doing. God says this about Job, even though Job got some things wrong and had to repent. God's testimony is this, and it is clearly this. Job does not just love God because God had blessed him. That's what the whole, how the whole story begins, right? The accuser says to God, look, this guy Job, he only loves you because you've given him so much stuff. And the testimony of God at the end of the book is this, that Job loves God not because God blesses him, Job loved God because he loves God. Now, what were Job's options, though? Could you imagine being under that kind of pressure? What were his options? Well, he could have given in to the pressure of his friends, become thoroughly convinced that all of this was happening to him because he had done something wrong. And he would have taken guilt and shame upon himself that were not his. And we do that, certainly, during times of suffering. We become convinced that we've done something. Or he could have gone the other direction and become very fatalistic. He could have said, look, God's just going to do what God does, and I don't matter, and nothing what I, do, nothing what I do matters. No, in fact, Job becomes the example of what it means to actively wait. Because he both rejoices in his time of suffering in this story, and he wrestles with hard questions during his time of suffering. Now, there's an old word for this. A word the Bible uses, and that is the idea of perseverance. The Christian who perseveres, the Christian who goes through active waiting, is the, the one who perseveres is the one who remains faithful, certainly, when they can tell that God is near. The one who perseveres is uh, the one who is able to continue to be faithful even when their Christian life gets a little dry and dull, as everyone's does. And the person who perseveres is the one who can remain faithful to God, even when all sense of God has disappeared. The book of Hebrews describes this as the idea of not forsaking. Or keeping, uh, making sure that things don't get, or don't slip away. It's the idea that we do our best to keep weight off so that we may run as hard as possible. The book of Revelation describes it as the process of enduring. To endure, to be faithful in times of false teachers, to be faithful in times of sinful ideas, becoming the norm of being faithful in times of persecution and suffering. We've seen this many times in the book of Psalms, haven't we? David has says, you know what, my enemies are around me, this difficult situation has come upon me, but he makes this declaration, I will not be moved. 
And again, one of the things we should find comfort in here is that perseverance and endurance are not defined by God using perfection. Job slipped up. And perhaps we share the temptation with Job to think that during our times of difficulty, that this is a permanent condition. Job thought that. Job thought he would never be restored. Job thought he would never see any of the joy he had in his life again. But at the core of Job was a desire to be righteous. And that's what allowed him or enabled him to repent when he needed to repent. And this is why God is able to say at the end of the book, after all this has happened, that this is my servant. So first of all, the normal Christian life does contain many times of active waiting. Number two this morning, the Christian is always part of spiritual warfare. Look at verses 7 and 8. God clearly declares here that Job's friends were wrong. Again, they were convinced or they accused Job of being a severe sinner. Again, they got angrier and angrier with Job when he insisted that his suffering was, was innocent. When he continued to insist that this did not deserve to happen to him, they continued to press upon him. But here God says, they were wrong. And what he declares is that there is such a thing as innocent suffering. The beginning of this book, we have a scene in heaven with a conversation between God and a creature that the text literally calls the accuser. Later in the book, as we saw, I think it was last week, this accuser, this Satan, is again described as a Leviathan. Job becomes, over the course of this book, he has become the, the object of the attention of the Leviathan, which according to our text last week is terrifying. What we must understand is that Job is not just in a battle. Job is the battlefield. We watch this monster, this Leviathan, tear and rip into Job's life. And we find out that he is suffering because he's a genuine believer. That Job faces tragedy because he loves God. In this way, as we have talked over this whole series, Job is a type of Christ. Jesus was innocent in every way. He remained innocent in every way. Jesus loved and served God perfectly in every way. And we see in the Gospels that the Leviathan went after Jesus much harder than he ever did after Job. Jesus faces temptations, betrayals, loss, persecution, agony, of course, extreme physical pain and death. The Bible is very clear that it was Jesus' obedience and his love for his father that made men shout, crucify him. Just like Job's suffering uh, teaches us that there is such a thing as innocent suffering for the glory of God, we watch as Jesus' innocent suffering accomplishes the greater good in opening the door for our salvation. We should learn from Job that the normal part of the Christian life is spiritual warfare. It's why we're told to put on the full armor of God. It's why we're told that we have enemies that are more than flesh and blood, and so we need weapons that are more than flesh and blood. And we're told that Leviathan is on the prowl every day, looking to seeking who he can devour. Now, Job does serve as an extreme illustration, doesn't he? 
Because Job not only faces the Leviathan, or the great accuser, Satan, he does so with a wife who told him to curse God and die. He does it with friends who are convinced that he's a great sinner. He does it dealing with immense physical pain. He does it under the clown of mourning over his children and the anxiety of having lost all of his financial security. Now, I mean, at least most of us have our health, don't we? Most of us have somebody we can count on. The Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4 that when we face spiritual warfare, we should not act if something strange has happened. There's a moment in the Gospels where Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan is asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. Now Jesus says he doesn't, he doesn't pray that Satan's not allowed to do it. He prays that Peter's faith would not fail. You and I, every day. Perhaps we're not dealing directly with Leviathan himself, but we have a heart that is in constant mode trying to deceive us. Or we live in a world that is constantly trying to be rid of us or trying to get us to abandon ship. The Christian is always, always, at any time, in every place, a part of spiritual warfare. And then number three, finally this morning, the Christian has an ever-present need for God's grace. Look at the final verses here with me. I want you to look at two phrases here. Verse 10, the Lord turned the captivity of Job. The idea there is that God brought an end to Job's suffering. And then we go to verse 12 and we see another phrase, the Lord blessed Job. Now, one of the things we've already noted is that God has justified Job. What does that mean? God has pronounced Job a good person. Whether we want to believe it or not, that is something only God can declare. Only God can pronounce a person good. But he doesn't just do that for Job. He then vindicates Job. God makes it so that Job has to pray for his friends. These guys who have put themselves out there as the holy ones... And have accused Job throughout this entire book of being the sinner. Now has to depend upon Job to keep from having to face the wrath of God. Then these final verses display to us the mercy and the compassion shown to Job. Not only does God remove his suffering. Not only does he restore everything but he gives Job even more. Now, over the course of this book, we've watched Job long for the grace of God. He has asked God and wished God would show him kindness in one form or another. In James chapter 5, the Bible tells us that Job is not just our example of perseverance, but he is an example to look to to see the mercy and compassion of God. What do we find at the end of the story of Job? We see God showing grace in the form of mercy and compassion. But verse 17 is still there. Job still dies. And what that points to is the need for a greater grace. Job teaches us that a normal part of the Christian life is the ever-present need for God's grace. 
The book is very clear that all that Job had before he suffered was because of the grace of God. It was God's kindness that made Job acceptable after he repents. It is the kindness of God that Job is blessed again at the end of the story. And we find that Job's story is our story. No matter how little you have this morning, you have more than you deserve. And you have it because God is kind. But there's an even greater grace. We're sinners, entirely incapable of saving ourselves. We have a congestive spiritual disease. So God sent, out of his kindness, Christ who could save us. He did it all. He paid it all. We have nothing to add, nothing we need to add. The Bible is clear. It says in Ephesians, you are saved by grace through faith. Salvation comes to you first in the form and by the way of grace. Grace arrived that you would believe. First John says it this way. You only, loved him, you only love him today because he did what? Because he first loved you. The greater grace. John says in his gospels that when Christ, when Jesus Christ came, grace came upon grace. The picture there is grace crashing into grace, spilling grace everywhere. The only reason we ever persevere in our times of difficulty is because he gives us grace. The only reason we're not crushed under the stress of spiritual warfare is because of grace. And at the end of our story, when we die, there will be mansions and crowns and a garden city and a resurrected body and eternal sunshine for us because of grace. So let us conclude the book of Job by saying this. The book of Job points us to Jesus. The blameless believer, accused and despised by men, vindicated by God in the end when he rose from the dead. So this book, not just about Job, points us to Jesus and is for all of us who walk in his footsteps. The normal Christian life will be warfare and there will be waiting and there will be being loved and humbled by God's grace. And it will all be with the expectation of blessing at the end. And the Bible is very clear. The blessings promised to us at the end are just like a good meal in beautiful children and celebrating prosperity. David describes it as the eternal bliss of pleasure at the right hand of God. The blessings are rock solid, real. Perhaps this morning you know what's for lunch and your mouth has begun to water. The pleasure of eating. The pleasures of God are just as real as the pleasures of eating. And they all, all, they, all of it will be ours, not because we earned any of it, but grace through Christ. We receive resurrection and all the gifts of God. And perhaps we understand a little better what the Apostle Paul meant when he says the sufferings of this time pale in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. And so hopefully we too, at the end of all of this time in Job, after reading nearly every word of this book together, 
we find ourselves willing to trust a heavenly father who is good and just. And to enjoy and to know the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our four years in this book. We thank you for the lesson of Job. And how I pray, Lord, that it would be something we take with us to, uh, or into our lives and to our neighbors and to our friends. We thank you for the joy, the celebration of your grace. And Lord, just like Job, we will find at the end of our story, blessing. We thank you for that, Father. And we thank you that it is all secure because of the work of Christ. And that we have it all by your kindness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.